This morning's scripture reading comes from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 through 27. Please follow along in your own Bibles, or as the text is presented on the screens above. I will be reading from the New International Version today. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet, and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil kind of a scary world these days. Um, I think scarier than when we were kids. Yeah, social media, there's just, there's so much, even our nieces are teenagers right now, and even since they were born, there's just so much more, you know, what's it going to be like in another 13 years, and... You know, it's, it's really a different world than when we were kids or teenagers, and, um, you know, all these factors we didn't have to deal with are we going to be able to help them navigate that? I don't know if there's a lot we can do yet with a, you know, with our oldest being three to prepare her for all those things other than talking to her about God's love for her and her identity in Christ and um, just the foundation, working on the foundation right now for what will come in the next few years um, as she starts going to school and things like that. It's just amazing how um, a person can go from, you know, sort of this tiny little lump of a person when they're first born into, you know, a fully developed or, or fully developing personality by the age of three and just, you know, the things that she imagines and notices and um, it's just... I guess hard to explain that without God being involved. It brings back a lot of wonder, you know, and um, excitement about life and the world. And um, it kind of reminds you of, like, what an amazing world and what an amazing um, creation we are. Since it's Mother's Day, uh, as just for you moms, as you look at that picture up there, what comes to mind? Come on. All right, I know how moms think. So either, either like, where is the mom? Or there's got to be a truck coming down around the... Just, you can kind of see it just coming around the corner there or something. They worry. And um, so um, Earl Palmer is uh, a name of a pastor who in this area influ- has... He's had a lot of influence at University Presbyterian Church. And I, he has a great quote, kind of a proverb, actually. And um, it's something like this, that, pre- that parenting is not about preparing the road for your children. It's about preparing your children for the road, right? And that's, that's really good to remember. Those protective instincts that mom have are especially necessary and obvious in, in situations like this. But as, what your real job is as they get older is to prepare their hearts 
preparing a heart for the road, because uh, that road can be dangerous. The good news is that God has, um, he, he has put into the heart of a child a kind of a, it's part of the grain of the universe, kind of built in, baked into the children is the heart that wants to look to their parents for the tools and resources to walk on that road. And he has given parents uh, all over the world the desire to want to transmit their faith and their values to the next generation. Uh, You you can see it in every culture, in fact, every religion. Uh, It's something to do with parenting that seems to be from the hand of God. So developing, though, the heart, guard your heart, the scripture says, this, this is our key verse, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Everything that is alive comes out from the heart. And so guarding the heart is priority. And it's priority for parents, but as we transmit our faith, it's got to be a priority. So we're going to look at that word, heart. Actually, I want to just do a word study on three yeah, there we go. Three words that, uh, and the last one is heart. And the, the, I put the Hebrew up there just maybe in case you want to know. But righteous or sadiq, the path or the way, those words are used interchangeably. Ora or direct is the uh, Hebrew in that. And then the heart, the lev. And we'll look at each of these words that are mentioned in this passage and um, figure out how, what it means to guard our hearts for it is the wellspring of life. All right, so the word righteous is the first uh, word. And if I were to say to you, or someone were to say to you, you are so righteous, does that feel like a compliment or an insult? Yeah, I don't know. You see, it, it, the, the day we live in, it's not a, it's not a really positive word that it, maybe it once was. And so we have to um, kind of resurrect it, maybe deconstruct some of our uh, assumptions that we bring to that word. So here's the deal. In the Old Testament, whenever you find a righteous person, it's a very high title for a person in the Old Testament. And if you are a righteous man or a righteous woman, you are willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of others. That's what it means to be righteous. It's relationally defined, righteousness. Willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of other people. Now, how's that feel? I mean, right, now think about, we're going to give some examples here. Example number one, because it's Mother's Day. Do moms ever do that? They disadvantage themselves for the sake of someone else. So, okay, moms, you're, um, thank you. Uh, we were, there was a group of us that were just in uh, Jerusalem and then Israel. And so we went to the, uh, the museum there, the Holocaust Museum, uh, Yad Vashim, I think it's called. And in that museum, they list 11,000 uh, what they call righteous Gentiles. And to be qualified as a righteous Gentile, uh, it has to do with the Holocaust in Germany and the Gentiles, the non-Jews who saved the Jews from death basically. And there's amazing stories there. But these are people who disadvantage themselves, put their lives at risk for the interests of others, for the sake of others, so others would have the advantage of life. And uh, it's it's something that Israel as a nation celebrates, and they should. And in our... uh, on Patty's side of the family, her dad's cousin, whom we've got 
to know. She married uh, a man uh, who's now 80, in his 80s, and he was uh, raised Jewish in Warsaw, in, the, in Poland. By the way, of the 11,000 that were uh, the righteous Gentiles, almost half of them are from Poland, which is, if you know the story of the, the Holocaust, you'll understand maybe why, but it also has to do with the heart of the Polish people. So his mother was, was, um, was killed by the Nazis, and then he lived with a nanny for, two, for a year or two, and she was killed. And then uh, a Catholic priest found him hiding, and he hooked uh, Ed up with a Catholic family that hid him for two years, and he was able to escape to America and married Patty's dad's cousin, and now um, we get to see them every every so often. But the righteous Gentile, that Catholic woman, that Catholic priest. So, um, and then when we were just in Jerusalem, uh, there was uh, we were in Bethlehem. We, we we spent days in Jerusalem and then also in Bethlehem. And our tour guide was a Jewish Israeli, and uh, I don't know what's going on here, but I'll try to be nice. And um, Jewish Israeli tour guide for the first few days of our trip. And there were signs when you go into Bethlehem, if you're a Jewish, an Israeli citizen, don't go past this point. That's put there by the Israeli government. And he did. Because he knew what it feels like from the Jewish perspective to be a persecuted people. He wanted to identify with the Palestinians who are now a persecuted people. He risked himself for the sake of others. This is what righteousness is. In the Old Testament, you have Ruth. You have the story of Ruth, who left her homeland to, be, to disadvantage herself by clinging to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who went back to Israel. And Ruth is considered a righteous woman. And Esther, who saved her people by, with that great phrase, if I perish, I perish. God's in control. He can handle it. So you have these, these righteous people in the Bible. And then you have one of my favorite people from literature, uh, from the Lord of the Rings. You have Sam. And uh, Frodo says, go back, Sam. I'm on, I'm, I am going to Mordor alone. And Sam says, of course you are, and I am coming with you. He puts his life on the line for, out of his faithful love for Frodo. So if that's, it gives you an idea of, of what it means to be a righteous person. What is an unrighteous person? Well, an unrighteous person is someone who looks out for their own interest all the time above others. And since we live in a, uh, and, and I, I, was, I was an economics major in, in college, um, that's what, that's what capitalism basically is, is self-interest. It's built on self-interest. And the idea is that self-interest will ultimately translate to the interests of the whole. Does it? Not always. You've got to be honest about that. And in my readings of those, in those years in college of reading Ayn Rand, for one, and uh, Frederick Nietzsche, others, I've had to cleanse myself of that way of thinking. And I understand that I still act in my self-interest all the time, but I want to celebrate it. And I want to do my best to be more like Jesus, who did not act in his self-interest, but for the interests of others. So um, unrighteousness surrounds us everywhere. If we define it relationally, it surrounds us, and it's always a threat to our own hearts and to the hearts of our children. But if you look at the heroes of life, they are people who give themselves up for others. Okay, the path. Let's go to the path or the way. 
So what is that? It's a huge metaphor in the Bible. The Christian life or the life of faith is, is often talked about as a path or a way that you walk along. And when you walk, you don't run, you don't skip, you don't somersault because it's a long journey. You walk one foot in front of the other. And if I'm not right, at least my life, most of the time is fairly boring. Anybody else have that? I mean, it's just, you know, it's going to work and getting up and making dinner and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and you do those boring things faithfully. You do them, uh, you're, you're being slow cooked. You're being, uh, your, your heart is being shaped as you walk along the path, along the way. And if you can do those little things in life faithfully, Jesus says, if you're faithful in the small things, that when you come to the big thing, when you come to that fork in the road, that T, where you have to decide whether to go to the left or to the right, and your life kind of depends on it, or at least the quality of your life depends on it, your chances of making the right decision go way up if you've made little wise decisions one step in front of the other along the way. Does that make sense? So it's, it's just, that's what the Bible means by walk. That's the Old Testament use of that term, to walk along the path or along the way. Annie Dillard, uh, an author, has this line that is, is both simple and profound. She says, how you spend your days is, of course, how you spend your life. That's the idea. I mean, it's just what you do every day is really, if you add them up, is kind of where it goes in, in terms of your, your whole life. So we form habits, and habits are not things that we um, can, I mean, we, we, they're tricky. So let me, let me give you a couple of habits that will maybe um, make sense to you. If you get up every day and you read the Bible, let's just say you decide to do that, and you decide to do it out of duty, obligation, but eventually you kind of like it. That's what happens oftentimes with habits. If it's a good habit, it, it, there's, there's a benefit to it, and you feel that benefit, and you see it in your life, and good things happen. And then one day you wake up, and you read the Bible, and you realize that the Bible is reading you. The Bible is reading your heart. This is, this is what we're talking about here. What was once not natural to you becomes second nature to you. It's an amazing thing when it happens. But it also happens, because there's going to be two paths here we'll talk about. But let's just say instead of reading the Bible, you do something else. Let's say you click on a, uh, your board, and in your board, and you click on pornography. And then you do that, and it becomes a habit. And then one day, you may or may not realize it, but basically the, you're being clicked on. In other words, you've lost control. It's become a habit. It's an unthinking habit, which has taken control of your life. And so this, these little decisions that you make in your boredom in the everyday life become big decisions that uh, shape your heart as you go along the way. Now, there are two paths that the Scripture brings out here, and I'm going to read them for you. In verse 18 is the path of the righteous. Uh, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of the dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. Uh, there, these two paths. When we were, when Patty and I were, we had a friend who, um, um, he, he, he had kids, and we were, I just mentioned last week, we were always kind of watching other parents, and these guys had kids just a little older than ours, and he would say, the father would say to his, to his sons, he would say, okay, now Colin, are you going to take the good boy path or the naughty boy path? And one day Colin said, I want to take the naughty boy path. 
and that, you know, kind of, you know, that, well, ruined his uh, thing. But it worked for a while. But this good boy path or good girl path, it has this nature to it of it starts out when you're on that path, it's like the dawn, the first gleam of the dawn. So there's light in the sky. It's not dark. There's light. And if you got up this morning, maybe around 4.30, you'd get to that first glimpse or gleam of the dawn rising. And then it gets brighter as, as the day goes on. Now, here's what, here's what happens. In the spiritual life, I'll say it this way, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It may not be fair, but Jesus talked a lot about this, that those who have, more will be given. Faithful in the little things, more will be given to you. And those who live in darkness tend to uh, become more dark. It's just you tend to go one way or the other. Uh, you, as you walk along that path with the, the light of the first, at the first dawn or the first light in the sky, you start to put dots together. You connect this dot with this dot. You realize that if you do these things, the cause and the effect happen. And you, as, as you walk in that way, you see more and more clearly as you go on, as you more, have more history with God, you understand the wisdom that he has put into this world. Now, on the darkness side, it reads that... Um, those who walk in the in the way of the wicked, it has a, a different effect. But the way of the wicked is like the deep darkness. They do, and here's the part that's interesting: they do not know what makes them stumble. In other words, they can't see the cause and the effect. They're living in darkness, and they can't understand why their life isn't working. And, it may, and if you feel that way, that's that's a wake up call. Uh, to understand why your life isn't working is because you're not on the right path. You're in the path of darkness. You're in the path of self-understanding instead of receiving from God. So uh, there's a, um, uh, a writer, Scott Peck, uh, who years ago, I wrote a book, and in that book there was a woman who was partying and she was just she had that kind of look to her she was always living in chaos nothing worked for her and her what she, her reputation was that she was partying and he said to her one day have you you know as she was trying to make her life better she he said to her well have you considered not partying so much and her response to him it's really kind of sad but it's, it's it was well um you mean i don't have to do what i want to do you see, you can't, she can't understand the connection between the dots. When you ask the, I don't have to do what I want to do? He, see, her heart wants partying. <laughs> Is there a deeper place in that heart somewhere that maybe wants something else? And, and, and you wake up in the morning and you have a hangover and you take two aspirin, never thinking that maybe the cause of the partying or, or the headache is the partying. You can't connect the dots. You're living in darkness. That's what this path is all about. Okay, let's go to the heart. And uh, I want to spend a little bit more time on that one. It starts out in verse 20, talking about body parts. And the, the, uh, uh, the metaphor here is body parts. So we're gonna, uh, I want you to see the big picture. He's going to talk about the ears and the eyes. And he's going to talk about the heart 
And then that which flows out of the heart, meaning, and, and I'll get to that part, but there's this inflow and outflow with the heart in the middle. Okay, That's why above all else, guard your heart. Not guard your eyes, not guard your ears, not guard your mouth or your feet. It's, it, you'll see that the heart is at the center of all things. So let's define heart. And we'll never get anywhere if we use today's definition of heart. We'll be stuck. So I've I got to deconstruct our definition of heart and then rebuild what the biblical definition is, and then we can start going forward. So our definition of heart, let's start with the head. With the head, we what? With the heart, we feel. That is so foreign. That is so foreign to the Bible. (laughs) When you see the word heart in the Bible, that comes from Greek philosophy, and it has nothing to say to us at this point. Now, we, we have to flush that out of us somehow. We, we've seen too many movies. We've seen Luke Skywalker, uh, well, trust your heart. Is it trust your heart or trust your feelings? But some of these great lines from movies, and they're all about the heart. You don't see any Valentine cards with a brain on it. It just doesn't, you know, you, you just, it's everywhere, this stuff I'm telling you. Okay, so what the Bible would say, what the Old Testament particularly, but also the New would say, is that your heart is the deepest part of you. It is the true you, where you reside, and you have the thoughts of the heart. Your intellect is anchored in your heart. That's your deepest place of thinking. And your feelings, your emotions are anchored in your heart. Yes, that's true, but so is your will. So think of intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally, your head, your heart, and your, your actions, your will, are all in that one place, the deepest part of you. And underneath the deepest part of you is a love for something. That is what drives the heart, is this love of something, this, the affections of the heart, uh, as some have said. And what you love will determine who you are and what you do. This is why the, the first, you know, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. Above all else, love God. If you love money, guess what? This is the irony, the worst irony ever. If you love money, you're always going to feel poor because you'll never have enough. And if you love beauty, you're always going to feel ugly because you're never going to quite look good enough. And if you love intellect, you're going to feel stupid because you don't, you know, you just feel like you're not smart enough, you have to get more. So, if you love God, he's enough. So, this is where to guard your heart means to guard that deep, deep love in your heart. I want to give you a picture. Uh, We've got a lot of, if I can get that up there, a lot of... uh, filtering going on here today. Is there a picture I can get up there? (laughs) I'm not getting it here. Uh, There it is, right there. I got it. Okay, and this is uh, J. Everett Millay from, uh, anyway, I won't go into all the details. What I want you to notice is you have a storyteller there who is pointing where? To the sea. And this this picture is, or this art is called um, The Boyhood of Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh, who became a great explorer. And this picture is saying this is where it started by a storyteller pointing out to the sea when he was 10 years old. He's the one on the left there. Do you see his eyes? Longing for going where the storyteller is pointing. 
And he had a love in his heart to explore the world out there. Here's what we're after. A love for God that way. A love for God's word that way. That's what it means. That's what we're saying here. The path of the righteous will have that kind of look in their eyes, that longing, that deep, deep longing in their heart for what God says. Now, the other part about this verse is that it says it's a wellspring of life. The heart is the wellspring of life, meaning it's not a stagnant pool. Think of a, 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 a pool or a reservoir. It's a, it's a flowing spring. So you have these inputs. Remember the eyes and the ears. The ears are, in verse 20, it says that, listen carefully, my son. And in verse 21, it says, look upon these things that I'm teaching you. In Hebrew, it's always, the ear is always ahead of the eyes. It's always primary. You learn through your ears more than your eyes. It was an oral culture as opposed to more of a visual culture that we have. But it's still for us to listen carefully to what God says and then to look upon what he has said to us. Those are the inputs that go into the heart and then the outputs that come out of the heart, out of those loves, that uh, love for God and love for people. And there we have listed for us the mouth in verse 24, your eyes again as you determine what direction to go in life that will keep you on the path or off the path and then your feet, which will do the walking for you, one foot in front of the other, whichever path you are on. The wellspring of life, there's a a dynamic here. Dallas Willard puts it this way, aim at the heart and its transformation. We do not aim just to control behavior, but to change the inner castle of the soul, that God may be worshipped in spirit and truth, and right behavior cease to be performance only. Okay? Jesus says pretty much the same thing in Mark chapter 7. When, he's, when people are talking about eating the right foods or not right foods, it's not, not about what you put into your heart with food. It's about, it's about the things that come out of your heart. And those things are determined by what goes into your heart, which has to do not with food, but with what you love and the things that you feed yourself with that come through your ears and through your eyes. So let's go to Jesus and we'll, we'll close. Now, was Jesus, just think about it, was he righteous? Remember the definition of righteousness? Someone who is willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of another person. It was Jesus righteous? In the, in the path question, when Jesus was asked by his confused disciples, and if you're a disciple of Jesus, there will be times of confusion. <laughs> But they were, they were confused when Jesus spoke about the way to the Father. Only one way to the Father. Jesus was very clear on this. There's one way to the Father. Only one way. And they said, show us the way. Where is the way? And Jesus says to them, I am the way. I am the way. There's no other way, Jesus said. So he is the, the path, or he is the way. He is the righteous one. He is the way. And he has a heart. And at the, at the base of that heart is a love, a righteous love that was willing to die for others. And that love has an arrow to it that points to you, to me, to all of us here. And I, I, here's what I, I want us to do. I, want us, there's a, there's an, I grew up in the Episcopal Church when I was a kid. And they had this great 
uh, invitation each week. Lift your hearts unto the Lord. Lift your hearts unto the Lord. It's a biblical expression, and they, they use it every week. And then we, people would say, we lift our hearts unto you, O Lord. The priest would say, lift your hearts to the Lord. We lift our hearts unto you, O Lord. What I want to do right now, and we're not going to go through that right, but what I want you to do is lift your heart to the Lord. Lift that part of you to the Lord, which is where your deepest loves are, where your deepest thinking is, your deepest feeling, your, your acts, your will, power, all that stuff is in there. Go to the loves that are underneath all of that, the deepest loves you have. Lift your heart to the Lord, and let's pray together. Oh Lord, we lift our hearts to you. You are the righteous one who disadvantaged himself for us. I lift my heart to you now. I lift that which is most deep, most central to who I am. And I ask you to make it new, make my heart new, to heal me, to repair the brokenness to bring fresh water, to soften, all those things, Lord. We lift our hearts to you. And Lord, may we hear, as we do that, may we hear your voice of love to us as you look upon our hearts, as we lift our hearts to you, may we hear you say those words, I love you. I love you. And may that love that we hear from God be the source of love for others. Infuse us now, infuse me now, Lord, with your love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.